This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. Netta Shami. Dr. Shami is a cornea and refractive surgeon in Los Angeles and a role model to so many of us in the ophthalmology world. Dr. Shami, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, to do this with you. I am too, and as, as our listeners probably know by now, cornea is my favorite topic. So our case today is a 25-year-old woman with a history of keratoconus who presents to your office with sudden onset of pain and decreased vision in the right eye. Now, as most of the listeners know by now, keratoconus is an ectatic disorder in which the central or paracentral cornea undergoes progressive thinning and protrusion. Dr. Shami, can you walk us through the demographics and risk factors for development of keratoconus? Yeah, absolutely. Just as you said, uh, keratoconus is an ectatic uh, disorder, and it's important to note that it's a non-inflammatory condition of the cornea, um, and it is ecstatic and progressive. It does have a slight female uh, preponderance and higher in uh, South Asians and Middle Easterns, although I have to say that I am seeing more and more of it, and I think that uh, kind of demographics is probably going to change. But for the sake of uh, tests and such, that's what typically is is taught to us. Um, there is a genetic predilection, and and, and actually some colleagues in um, in cornea, such as uh, Natalie Afshari and Tony Aldave, uh, who are really good friends, are looking into this, and really a lot of wonderful opportunities for research. If if anyone wants to get involved with that, uh, but there is also environmental risk factors such as eye rubbing, inflammation, and any kind of inflammatory ocular surface like atopic conditions. Um, one question that we often ask if a patient uh, has early signs of keratoconus is I asked a patient, do you rub your eyes? And it's, um, it's really incredible. Um, often they, they, they may say, no, I don't. But then if they have a companion with them, I ask the companion, do they rub their, their eyes? And they're like, oh my gosh, yes. And then if you ask them to demonstrate how they rub their eyes, it's typically knuckle rubbing or, you know, with the palm of their hand, they really dig in. And, um, and so that's really an important environmental risk factor to talk to patients about. You know, patients with Down syndrome also are at risk uh, for developing uh, keratoconus, uh, as are people who uh, ride motorcycles without goggles. Um, so that kind of um, the, the, the wind and, and, I, and the thought being the trauma to that, does it incite and um, turn on those genes that uh, or turn on the uh, the uh, kind of the keratoconic uh, progressive changes in the cornea. 
Um, it usually starts in puberty, um, uh, typically in late teens mid or early teens. Uh, patients tend to uh, show up to the eye doctor because they can't see the board uh, and they're given glasses or contacts initially or glasses usually. And then it's, the prescription keeps getting uh, worse and worse over time. It progresses until about early to mid 40s. Um, and that is uh, quite typical of uh, kind of typical or classic keratoconus. It's less typical of pellucid marginal degeneration, and, I, and that's kind of maybe beyond the scope of our discussion today. But classic keratoconus typically stops progressing in early 40s, and the thought being that the cornea stiffens by then, and, and there's natural cross-linking that happens over time. Um, and it, it can be associated with hyperelastic uh, joints or people ha- who have um, systemic conditions such as Marfan's and such. Um, and uh, that's pretty much it when you... Uh, think about these patients and you, you're looking for, um, for potential uh, risk factors for keratoconus. I should uh, note that there is a, a new genetic uh, test that is, is becoming available. It's in the pipeline. Um, uh, Avellino is the company that's working with them. And that's going to be really exciting where you can potentially point of care test for keratoconus and be able to detect it even before classic or clinical symptoms and signs are presenting themselves. Wow, that's amazing because I know one of the the big things that we struggle with is diagnosing these patients early. So that's amazing that we have that. The other thing that um, kind of stopped me dead in my tracks while you were talking is obviously I don't ride motorcycles, but I bike and biking in New England in the winter, your eyes definitely feel like they take a beating. Every morning, my eyes are in physical pain, discomfort while I bike to work. So I wonder... I wonder if that puts me at increased risk. I hope not. I hope not. Look into it. I don't know. I don't know if it's the the high speed of a motorcycle or is it the exposure? Who knows? But that's that was kind of one of the side um, notes that I picked up uh, on kind of looking at the um, uh, demographics of patients or just the pathophysiology of the disease. It's not as commonly thought of as eye rubbing. Eye rubbing is most definitely strongly associated with keratoconus. It's so interesting to think about. So what are some of the clinical manifestations? Well, it all depends on what stage of the disease. We talked about how this is progressive. And as you mentioned, ideally, you want to catch it early. But let's talk about clinical manifestations. And they they tend to be uh, in the more moderate to severe cases where clinically it can manifest itself. Um, Nearly all cases are bilateral, although they can and often are asymmetric. One of the things I ask patients who have very asymmetric keratoconus is, are you right-handed? And if they're right-handed, they tend to rub their right eye more. And if I see asymmetric where the left eye is more severe, I would say eight out of 10 times, it's a left-handed patient who has a more severe left, um, left-sided left keratoconus. Um, I haven't done any studies to really document that, but that's been my, uh, my experience. Um, as far as clinical signs where um, you, uh, if you have suspicion for keratoconus, what things you would find on your exam and these are things, or on your patient's exam, as well as the tests that you will take the exam for, <laughs> for ophthalmology, the um, scissoring of the red reflex, although I can't remember the last time I, I did this, I think just for fun to show others the scissoring of, of the red reflex on retinoscopy uh, due to irregular astigmatism. So if you're doing retinoscopy, you'll see that there will be significant scissoring as the light passes the central aspect of the cornea where the steepening is. 
the Rizzuti sign um, is uh, is when the light focuses, and I wish I could show images, but light focuses on the nasal limbus on the iris. If you take a pen light and at a tangential um, angle, you illuminate the cornea from the side, from the temporal side, the light will focus uh, in a conical way on the iris towards the nose. Uh, and it would be like a, a pinpoint, very irregular light. So I would say try this on regular corneas. You'll see that the light reflects on the iris in a very kind of rounded way. But if, if it's a keratoconic, you'll see that it kind of comes to a, a point uh, towards the nose. The Munson sign is one that uh, I have used and I continue to use clinically. But again, these are more moderate to moderately advanced keratoconus. It's more kind of uh, out of interest type of signs uh, that you look for. That hopefully, by the time uh, I mean by the time you you get to these signs, that the condition is so uh, advanced that there will be easier ways to 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 uh, detect it. But Munson sign is inferior deviation of the eyelid when when the patient's looking down. So uh, because the central cornea is conical, uh, when they're looking down, the the eyelid. Uh, curvature is not rounded. It's it 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 follows the cone of the the keratoconic cornea. Uh, Fleischer ring is iron deposition in the basal epithelium around the cone, and this is actually a sign I do sometimes look for if I'm wondering if the keratoconus has been stable in a patient. So, in a 50 year old, for example, who has keratoconus, you will likely find a Fleischer ring. And why is that? Um, uh, why does that happen when it's stable? It's because it's the tear film that, that collects that iron deposition. And if the keratoconus is uh, still progressing, then the tear film doesn't land exactly in the same area uh, over a long period of time. This type of iron line can also be used to detect uh, uh, if a pterygium, for example, has been stable. So um, Fleischer ring is a nice uh, sign to look for to give yourself re reassurance that probably this person person's keratoconus has been stable for many, many years. Uh, Votstria is a really fun sign. And this was actually uh, a sign that I got very embarrassed as a, as a fellow when Peter McDonald tested me on a patient. Uh, and what it is, is these are parallel stress lines at the base of the cone in the posterior stroma. So in a more advanced keratoconic, you get the stress line on the posterior cone, um, uh, on the posterior stroma, right behind where the steepest part of the cone is. And um, Peter McDonald um, actually tested me. What he did was he pressed on the globe a little bit. And he uh, what, what, what can happen is if you press on the globe away from the cornea, it relieves the stress and the, the uh, votstria are eliminated. So it's actually a way to determine if this is a truly a stress line or not. And he was pressing on the globe and I was talking about how the patient has, you know, votstria and has advanced keratoconus. And he kind of put his finger and pressed on the globe without me really paying attention. And as I was examining the patient and I said, wait a minute, the votstria is gone. I don't know where <laughs> is gone. And I had no idea you can do that. So that's, I will never forget and I try to trick others in doing that, and it's kind of fun to do. But that's one way to determine if, in fact, these are stress lines or not, is press on the globe. I wonder if you can press on the globe, like, through the eyelid, yeah. just up anywhere. Okay. I'm yeah. going to try that next time. My, my keratoconus patients are going to be like, why are you pushing on my globe? Yeah. Just, and it's really the slightest bit of pressure. You don't have to put a lot of pressure right. on it. 
just the slightest bit of pressure, it releases the stress and the vostria uh, temporarily are not visible anymore. Wow, that's such an interesting clinical pearl. So how do you evaluate these patients in your clinic? Well, you know, again, I have two scenarios in which I, I see keratoconic patients. One is a patient who has not been diagnosed with keratoconus, and they often come to us for refractive surgery, for example, uh, for LASIK. And those are much tougher that I have to determine if, if someone has f- uh, form frust or early keratoconus or pre-keratoconus, preclinical keratoconus. And the evaluation of those patients, uh, a little more difficult. And corneal topography a- is absolutely critical in, in determining if there's irregular astigmatism. So the cone causes steepening in the area of the cone. And because if you can imagine, it's like a beer belly, right? Um, where uh, people who have ascites or pe- beer belly, the, the part of the belly that's, that's protruding is more steep, but right above it is more flat. So the corneal topography will find that, will, will detect that. It'll be steep in the area where the cone is, and you'll see superior flattening, uh, right uh, superior to the area where the, the steepening is. So that's one way to detect it. Um, there is an increase in inferior to superior power ratio. So if you have a topography map that uh, gives you kind of a map of the corneal power around the um, kind of the circular rings on the cornea, you can look on the average power in the superior part of the cornea and compare that to the average power in the inferior. Um, and if there is, if it's more than one to one and a half diopter difference between the two areas, then that's telling that there is more steepening in an irregular asymmetric fashion inferiorly than, uh, than superiorly. Um, corneal tomography can help because it can give you posterior uh, 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 power calculations. And uh, the thought is that keratoconus, as it progresses, you first have posterior steepening before it manifests itself anteriorly. So one way to detect it earlier in a form frust time or pre-keratoconic time is to do corneal tomography and more advanced uh, diagnostics to detect it before it actually leads to anterior steepening. There's also uh, also significant skewing of the radial axes of a bow tie. So a patient can have uh, three diopters of astigmatism, and when you look at it, it may look generally symmetric uh, as far as the power of the cornea superiorly and inferiorly. But if you look at the tip of those bow ties, it may be skewed instead of being exactly 90 degrees from each other. I'm sorry, exactly 180 degrees from each other. It may be skewed in one direction or another, and that that could also be suspicious for early keratoconus. And then finally, I would say any uh, sign of progression, if a patient had uh, you know, manifest refraction, had a diopter and a half of astigmatism last year, and they come back and they now have two and a half diopters, they're in the right kind of age group, they're in their teens or 20s, they maybe share with you that they are eye rubbers or they have eye allergies, and now their vision has gone from 2020 last year to 2020 minus. Um, even if you don't have a topographer, that in itself is, is a red flag that you should consider doing topography and, and look for other signs of early keratoconus. 
I don't think I realized that there was posterior involvement early on. So I think that that's a really good thing to keep in mind if you are worried about a patient or you want to screen them early. One more point I want to bring up, and that is anterior segment OCT has also been a nice tool in detecting early keratoconus. And what we know of the natural contour of the cornea in a cornea that's a virgin cornea, not a post-refractive, for example, is that the central, that, that the thinnest part of the cornea is central uh, in the cornea. And when you do anterior segment OCT and uh, corneal thickness maps, if that thinnest part of the cornea has been moved inferiorly or uh, off-centered, and especially if the thinnest part now matches an area of steepening on the, on the corneal topography, that's a telltale sign that this patient has keratoconus or early keratoconus. And then back to your question about how to treat. Um, again, this follows the same uh, kind of what we talked about with the spectrum of disease. It depends on where the patient falls on that spectrum of disease. If the patient has mild case or early case, things have changed obviously with collagen cross-linking, but let's talk about how visually or how, how their vision is rehabilitated. So if they have early keratoconus, um, typically their vision can be rehabilitated with glasses or contact lenses. And these are patients who have mild, you know, increased astigmatism and they have, um, then they're correctable to 2020 with just manifest refraction. But now truthfully with collagen cross-linking, the sooner you catch the disease and the sooner you treat with collagen cross-linking, the better off you are. So the message I'm giving to my colleagues and to optometrists is that if you see a patient and you, you know, last time you saw them, they didn't need much prescription. And now they're having a diopter or even seven, you know, three quarters of a diopter of astigmatism, then consider, do they have keratoconus if there's suspicion, you know, based on topography and everything. And before prescribing them any glasses or anything, refer to cornea specialist for consideration of collagen cross thinking. Because if there is definitely evidence of progression, the sooner that's caught, the better and, um, and, and because collagen cross-linking freezes the disease in its path and, and it nine, close to 98% of the time successfully stops it from getting worse. So you don't want to wait until the patient has lost best corrective visual acuity to do collagen cross-linking. You want to do it as soon as you detect any progression. So moderate cases with irregular astigmatism Again, if there's any sign of progression at any point in the spectrum of disease, collagen cross-linking needs to be considered. Um, and collagen cross-linking can be offered up until the point that the corneal thickness is more than 400 microns. So again, there is a time where unfortunately the patient loses the opportunity to have their disease treated and stabilized. So the sooner it's caught, the better. And I can't emphasize that enough. Um, other ways of treating uh, or doing visual rehabilitation. So a patient, let's say they have progressive keratoconus, they get their collagen cross-linking, their cornea is then stabilized after about two months of recovery from collagen cross-linking, then their vision can be rehabilitated either with glasses, soft contact lenses, or if it's significant keratoconus, they may require hard or rigid gas permeable contact lenses, or possibly even scleral lenses. So if it's a really severe keratoconus where the steep part of the cornea is so steep that a tiny RGP, you know, rigid gas permeable falls off of that cornea, 
then they can either have hybrid contact lenses where the central part is hard and the periphery, the peripheral skirt is soft, or a scleral lens, which is a much lighter, I'm sorry, much larger contact lens, hard contact lens that sits on the sclera and, and vaults away from the central steep cornea with the space filled with fluid. And that way the patients can get optimized vision. There are intrastromal corneal ring segments that can be implanted. It's a, a kind of a silicone or a, 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 gosh, how should I describe it? Like a tiny microscopic silicone kind of rod that's in that's implanted in the corneal stroma where the steepening is to cause it to stretch and flatten the steep cornea. Uh, it does not prevent progression, but it does help with the shape of the cornea so that the patient can be corrected either with glasses or contact lenses. And then if a patient has had severe or has severe keratoconus where um, uh, there's either central scarring uh, or it's so thin that collagen cross-linking can be, cannot be done and the patient simply cannot tolerate contact lenses anymore, then a corneal transplant would be for end stage. And the type of corneal transplant that I do for keratoconics is called deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty, which is partial thickness corneal transplant. And we can talk about that. I know you had a question about that too. This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. It's funny because last year in the emergency room as juniors, we we spend most of our time there. And I had one week where I had two intrastromal corneal rig, ring segments that were extruding. And at that point in my training, I thought it was completely common and that this just happens all the time. But now I'm learning more and more that actually that was a very uncommon occurrence. Um, before we jump more into keratoplasty, can you give us just a very brief overview of cross-linking, what it is, how we do it? I know that this is one of the, the greatest treatments, as you alluded to, for, uh, for keratoconus today. And so um, I know we get tested on it a little bit as well. It's good to know. So collagen cross-linking has caused an absolute paradigm shift in the way we address uh, keratoconus now is it's been a really important addition to cornea and uh, it has made it uh, so much more fun for me to think about how our involvement in keratoconus is is really a lot more preventative uh, now in nature than surgically uh, oriented um, so basically collagen cross-linking what it is it's a photochemical treatment it's done in the office uh, in for again a patient who has progressive disease uh, the patient comes in the epithelium is uh, gently removed uh, and the, it's important the FDA approved approach to collagen cross-linking requires um, uh, for the epi to be removed the epithelium to be removed because what we do is we then instill riboflavin which is UV uh, which is essentially um, uh, it's kind of what we talk, we, when I describe this to patients, I say it's vitamin for the cornea. So it's riboflavin, which is essentially vitamin A, that's infused as eye drops onto the corneal surface. 
it, it takes about 30 minutes for it to infuse and get into this deep stroma. And then after the 30 minutes, we expose the cornea to UVA light. And the UVA light together with riboflavin generates a reactive oxygen uh, that then induces formation of covalent bonds between the collagen mo molecules of the cornea. And it strengthens the cornea. Um, and what we find is that after about a month, it requires about a month for remodeling, but after about a month, 90, something like 98% of these patients stop progressing uh, or their keratoconus stops progressing. Uh, and uh, it's been absolutely a, a, a game changer for keratoconic patients. It's incredible that just riboflavin and UV light can do this and that can stop progression of such a severe corneal ectatic disease. It's really incredible. So we kind of talked a little bit about the most severe cases that require uh, keratoplasty. And I know that you said that you perform DALK in your practice. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So as, as uh, you know, um, keratoconus is a condition that involves uh, the stroma, uh, the corneal stroma, and not the endothelial layer. The decimase and endothelial layer is normal in keratoconic patients. And so... Um, in order to correct it surgically, if, if need be, if the cornea uh, needs to be replaced, doing a penetrating keratoplasty, unfortunately, will also replace the healthy endothelial, uh, endothelium and the decimase, which is the layer that gets rejected in a corneal transplant. So DALK, deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty, is a partial thickness, almost near full thickness uh, corneal transplant that allows us to do a... Uh, uh, real targeted treatment of what the condition is. So you leave the patient's decimase and endothelial layer intact, and as a result, essentially eliminate the large source of rejection. And so many of these patients then can, can hold on to their corneal transplant for the rest of their life. One, because it, it really lessens the risk of rejection. The only way they can reject their cornea is if they have a stromal rejection, which is very, very rare. And also, when you keep the endothelium intact uh, and the patient has their own endothelium, endothelial cell loss slows over, uh, in, or, or is more, more of kind of natural pace. So uh, endothelial failure is far less in these patients in their, in, in their lifetime. So I feel fantastic knowing that I'm doing this for my patients when I do do DALK. Unfortunately, though, in the U.S., many, many surgeons still are not offering DALK to their keratoconics, and they're still doing penetrating keratoplasty, whereas in Europe, DALK uh, is kind of gold standard. Um, so my hope is that your generation of surgeons will take this on and really uh, champion this, this approach. And truthfully, my hope is that with collagen cross-linking, keratoconic patients will not ever need to have corneal transplants because the sooner it's treated, obviously the hope is that the need for corneal transplantation would be eliminated. Um, but that's essentially what DALK is. Thank you. Yes. I, I really hope that we're able to offer cross-linking more broadly. I think it's it's amazing right now, but it's so focused on private practices or specific academic centers that offer it where smaller community clinics just don't have it. And let alone, I mean, in global health, it's just non-existent. But hopefully we're able to expand access to everything that they would need to do that. So circling back to our case, so we have a 25-year-old with keratoconus and acute onset of pain and vision loss. 
obviously when you hear this clinical vignette, the first thing that I think about and that most people think about is acute high drops in this patient. And just as a review for our listeners, acute high drops occurs due to a sudden rupture of Decimase membrane, and then this break in Decimase results in fluid uptake by the corneal stroma. And I know as a junior resident, one of the things that I had to kind of organize in my mind is that although the pathology of keratoconus usually involves breaks in Bowman's layer, when you have an episode of acute high drops, it's a rupture in Decimase membrane, so it's two separate layers of the cornea. Dr. Shami, if this patient were to come into your clinic, is there any additional workup that you would need to get? Not really. I mean, out of interest, I, I do an anterior segment OCT, um, but it's just more for uh, for me to be able to vocalize to the patient and describe to the patient what's happened. It's not necessary. Um, and that's pretty much it. I, it. You know, I do check the anterior, seg- I do slit lamp exam, make sure there's nothing else going on anter- in, in the anterior chamber. But it's pretty classic presentation, sudden painful loss of vision with whitening of the cornea. The patient comes in with painful edema um, and uh, it's, it's kind of a no brainer. So how would we treat this patient? Yeah. So depending on the, on, on the discomfort and the pain, um, bandage contact lenses can be used if there is a break or, or bullous edema. Um, I, treat with uh, hypertonic agents. And then I sometimes use cycloplegic uh, uh, agents to help with the pain. Um, If there's any inflammation in the eye, I use steroids. Um, Sometimes with aqueous suppressants, it can help. It's it's a lot of kind of hand-holding pain management. Um, and, And if it's really severe or prolonged in its course, then you can inject an air bubble in the anterior chamber or gas or uh, uh, in the anterior chamber to essentially block the uh, fluid influx into the corneal stroma, uh, much the same way that one does with a retinal tear and retinal detachment. Um, and the, the risk of doing that, though, you can have a pupillary block if the air management or air injection is not controlled. Um, I have done that when necessary, but most of the time it's just monitoring the patient, give them, giving them reassurance and doing some pain management until it self-seals, which can take anywhere up to about three months before it does. And what's really interesting is that when it does self-seal, I have seen patients who had really severe keratoconus leading to the high drops with the fibrosis that happens as a result of the chronic uh, swelling and inflammation that happens around high drops the corneal uh, peak or cone sometimes can flatten and, and they often see actually an improvement in their vision after the high drops. Not to say you should cause high drops, <laughs> but I have seen that and it's really fascinating to me. I guess that's one upside to the pain that they have to suffer through when they have high drops. Yeah, exactly. So what is the prognosis for this patient or patients such as this that present with acute high drops? Yeah, as I mentioned, depends on where the break is. If the break is uh, central to their visual axis, then as it scars and fibrosis, it can impact the vision. And that's when you start considering a corneal transplant if the vision cannot be uh, optimized with contact lenses. Keep in mind that when you've had a high drops and the break in the decimase, you can't perform DALK anymore on these patients. And that's a real uh, shame. Now, I, I suppose you can do a DALK manual dissection down to the deep stroma, but the, the big bubble technique that I prefer to use, which really gives you a pure separation of the decimase uh, with, the, um, with the stroma, you cannot do. And uh, there are times when I'm surprised when I do a DALK where I have not 
been given a history of high drops by the patient or I don't see a scar, I try to do a DALK and when I inject the air bubble, it dissects into an area of weakness in the decimase that may have had a, like a micro uh, break. Keep in mind when someone has had a high drops because of the break in the decimase, they can't unfortunately um, have deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty anymore because uh, DALK, essentially you're separating the decimase from stroma by injecting air or doing hand dissection. And if they've had high drops, they'll have an area of weakness in the decimase that will break at the time of surgery. So it's, that's one of the unfortunate things with high drops that can happen. As far as uh, you know, prognosis of high drops, uh, as I mentioned, if the break is not uh, central and if it's in the periphery, uh, sometimes with the fibrosis, it actually can help the vision because it causes almost like a, um, almost like an intax or intrastromal uh, um, uh, segment type stretch on the cone. And sometimes patients see actually improvement in their vision. Um, but generally, um, the prognosis, it all depends on where the break was. Wow. So there were a lot of really incredible clinical and surgical perils this episode. Thank you, Dr. Shami, for that. Just to summarize everything that we learned today, keratoconus is an ectatic disorder of the cornea that results in progressive central and paracentral thinning. It's progressive until about the fourth decade when it becomes more stable. Mild cases are generally treated with glasses and contacts, with more severe cases requiring cross-linking, and in refractory cases um, requiring keratoplasty. I will say that progressive cases, as we learned today, whether they're mild, moderate, or severe, should really be considered for cross-linking as early as possible so that we can freeze the cornea in the state that it's in rather than allowing it to get to a place where it's so bad that the patient is requiring further treatment. Acute high drops is a complication of keratoconus, which results from rupture of decimase membrane. These patients generally present with pain, vision loss, corneal edema, and a decrease in IOP. Treatment is usually conservative with hypertonic agents, but more recently, pneumatic decimetopexy, which involves injection of air into the AC, can also be used. I'll also highlight another pearl that Dr. Shami shared with us, which is that treatment and prognosis will really depend on where in the cornea the high drops is. So Dr. Shami, before we end this episode, I ask all of my guests, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be? Well, I, I know that you were going to ask me that question, and I had a hard time coming up with an answer until that my daughter actually uh, reminded me how much I love Rumi. And I think you and I, uh, given your background and my background, as you know, Rumi is an ancient um, Persian poet and philosopher. And I always use his quotes whenever I want to give myself any lessons or my children any lessons. And one of my favorite quotes, actually, that may apply to this session is, as you start to walk on the way, the way appears. And that means that uh, don't wait for opportunities to come your way. Start on the way. Take the initiative for growth, for um, enlightenment, enlightenment for, um, for happiness and, and all those things will come your way. That's beautiful. So I haven't shared mine, but that was mine as well. So oh, really? I think we connect on a lot of different levels. Yeah. Rumi got me through some of the most challenging times of my life. And 
I also share his lessons with anyone that's willing to sit with me long enough to listen to me. <laughs> Dr. Shami, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to our listeners. Hope to see you next time on The Pupil Pod.